What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Lopriori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Danny Priori, and I am joined by professional golfer, mental health advocate, Mr. Andrew. Jensen, we were talking about, I wanted to make sure I always try to make sure I pronounce everybody's last names correctly. And we were talking about if it was a hard J or a Jensen. So I had to make sure that I said it correctly. But yes, Mr. Andrew Jensen is here. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to us, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for making it happen. All right. First question off the bat. Why is golf so hard? Can I swear on this podcast? Hell fucking yeah. <laughs> oh, music's turning up. It's just... It's just the worst sport on the planet, basically. <laughs> it really is. And here's the weird thing about it, too. It's like, you know, and we'll get into your story. Obviously, you got into it at such a young age, like seven years old, right? Yeah. Seven years old, you get into golf. You know, it's guys like me that try to pick up a golf club at 30. And we played other sports our whole life. And we think it's going to go like somewhat swimmingly. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're going out on the course trying to, you know, break 120. Yeah. I think that's the thing. The thing that makes golf so difficult, and I mean, professionals, we probably, we embrace that the most. And I think that's why it's it's probably not as hard for a professional golfer. It's still incredibly hard. Yeah. I think it's so difficult for 99% of people because expectations. No one has realistic expectations in the game of golf. Right. Basically, because you may have done something once and then you think you can do that, that again kind of on command or you may have shot a score once hit a shot once and then you think i'm going to do that every time i should do that every time without understanding that it's like the reason golf golfers at the highest level can repeat as often as they can is because it's like there's been hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice muscle memory between that moment of when it's not necessarily muscle memory it's the mental memory and understanding and confidence to do that stuff. Cause like I've got, I golf with my buddies around here that are like shitty golfers. You just whip their ass though. I don't even care though. That's the thing. It's not, it's just like, I prefer to golf with, with my friends than play with other professionals. And it's like, they'll, they'll hit a bad shot. Oh, I, I, I didn't do that last time. And it's like, yeah. See, the only bad thing about that though, is you go out there and they're like, so how do I do this? How do I fix that? You know, and then it's just like, it's like, dude, I really enjoy seeing my friends or family members that I golf with getting better. I can teach very well, but I'm not someone like I've got a lot of people over the years now of YouTube, like, oh, look at my swing or can I do lessons? And I'm like, I don't have that ability. But if I'm golfing with someone, I can, I just kind of have an idea. And I think the way that my dad taught me, it's like how to communicate and you have time to like see things kind of through. Yeah on the course when they're executing or not executing. And like, you can still do the right thing, but the result's not what you want. But that's where as like an instructor, you can be like, no, 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 no. Like that was really, really good. Like, don't worry about what that was. Like that was actually really good. But there kind of goes back to why golf is so hard because people worry so much about what, what happens when the reality is like, you can't control the minute it leaves the club face. Like it just, 
you control, but you can do the right thing and the wrong thing can happen. And like, that's where it's just people get fucking furious with it. It's just one of those things. Do you encourage an old soul like me at the ripe age of 33 to pick up a golf club now? For sure. The thing that like kind of grinds my gears the most with people in their twenties and thirties getting into the game of golf, which like what the pandemic kind of did is when compared to someone like myself who kind of grew up in it, I grew up understanding and learning the etiquette of golf, the pace of play and all of these things that actually make golf more enjoyable for everyone else on the golf course. But like a lot of people that just get into the game now because of top golf or whatever it is, they have no idea about how to play quickly. And like, there's so many times where I'm out playing and I'm like, you know, it's a foursome of guys my age in front of me. And they're so fucking slow because it's like, they just don't know they're dropping balls or doing this and that. And it's just like, hurry up. They'll drive all four guys to the one shot and drive all four. And like, that's the one thing that's tough with people our age teaching those things. Yeah. Let's get into how you grew up in the game, really. I mean, seven years old, who put the first golf club in your hand? Was it your father? Yeah, my dad was a club pro. Okay. So your father was a club pro. That's right. Yeah, he was a club pro back in back in Ottawa. So basically, like golf is just our family. You know, it's it's a pastime forever for our family. Like, like your grandfather played, great grandfather played. No, no, so like my basically at my dad. And then my mom played, my dad's two my dad's two two boys played, my sister golfed. Like it just be it was just something we all did, not necessarily all together, but just we watched golf and like so it was just that. So at seven or so years old, like I'd be out of the golf course, you know? Okay. And when you started, did you like it? Or were you like, uh, you were like this kind of, oh, you fell in love with it? Oh, I always did. Always, always did. And I think I, I played my first like holes at 10. Wow. Seven, eight, nine. And you think in the, winter, in the summer in Canada, right? So it's like basically being still in elementary school, it's like you had a few months to be out there maybe once or twice a week. But then by the time I was 10, it was like I was out there sun up to sundown every day. Wow. Because when you hear Canada, you don't think golf. Not really. But if you, if you look at the like actual data, Canada is like one of the highest. Oh, yeah. One of the highest participated countries in golf. Because it translates so easily from hockey. The motions are very, very similar. And it's just like, yeah, we're such a winter sport country. What do you do in the summer? Got it. You know, and, our, and our weather actually does allow for beautiful, beautiful conditions and, and golf courses to have been built. So it's like, yeah, at first, like stereotypically, you think it's just a cold country. But I mean, where I'm from in Ottawa, I mean, we still basically had seven months of a golf season. So it's not terrible. Can't beat that. Yeah. Seven months of golf season. Anything more than half the year, that's not bad. Yeah. And I mean, let's say, sure, you know, your, your April and maybe your October are a little spotty, but May, June, July, August, September are perfect. All right. So your dad puts the club in your hand. Your dad was a military guy, right? Yeah. So he was, uh, yeah, he was military. So then he got out and picked up golf basically when he was in the military. He played golf in like in his twenties and became an assistant pro at the golf course. And then the year I was born, 84, he became the head pro at Highland. Yeah. Got it. So your dad's in the military, right? Probably a tough, hard nosed guy. For sure. And you think about it. My dad's born in 1938. He's from a way different generation. Yeah. Yeah. Your grandma was holding him during a world war. Basically. Yeah. Which is insane to think about. He was born during the second world war. Like my dad's parents were Danish. They, they left Denmark. Yeah. To come to Canada between the two world wars. That's wild. That's wild. Like if, if you really think about it, like just our lineage, if you go back to our grandparents, our grandparents and our parents saw some shit. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like a lot of like, 
my dad's old and I mean, my dad's 84. My dad's old enough to be, is the same age as a lot of my grandparents. Yeah, for sure. But if you think about it, it's like these, he was alive during World War II, saw Kennedy get assassinated and he was probably like 30. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Born in 38. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's yo, your dad's seen some wild shit. I know. And your dad's still with us, right? He's 84, you said? Yeah. Yeah. He's back in Ottawa still. Yeah. How are things with your pops now? You guys cool? Oh yeah. Things are great. I mean, obviously we don't talk too, too much. Like we still talk. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think since having our, our boy, you know, it's just a different, our dynamic is just even more special. Right. It is even more special because it's like my dad is very aware of his age. My dad's super healthy and he'll probably live for a long time, but it's still like, you know, he's got maybe 10 years left, you know? So it's like, we want to make the most of the time that my son, and you know, he can be with his grandson. It's, it's cool. And like every time we, we FaceTime them, it's just like, it's like, it's almost emotional for him almost every time. Yeah. We won't be able to understand it, you know, if we're blessed to get there until then, you know, but you know, your dad being a military dad, was he like, you know, the stereotypical military dad in a sense, was he tough on you? Was, was when it came to like prospering in sports and shit, like, was like, was he on your ass a little bit? A little bit. So it's like both. So my dad, I think there's a little bit difference between like Canadian military and US military. My dad was a member of the show, Major Dad. Like my dad was, you know, both my brothers, both my dad's first boys, they went into the military and they, they went a long way. They both retired in like the last couple of years. Like they're 60 and 58 years old and they were full colonels. Like they went a long way. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were there for a while. Yeah. And they, they climbed the ranks very, very high. And like, they were both very good golfers too. One was one of the, one of my brothers is like world champion in military golf. Like, Oh, all right. So they were both filthy too. Yeah. My eldest brother was like, he always wanted to be a professional, but he listened to my dad. My dad kind of was cautious, very cautious with things like that. And I didn't, I'm from a different generation where I didn't listen to my dad. And I think that was some of the things that were a bit difficult with him raising two boys when he raised them and they kind of listened to dad. Whereas then raising me in the nineties, you know, it's like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Yeah. You don't listen your parents. Yeah. No. And that's why even with my dad teach me the game of golf, I didn't really listen to him. The assistant pro taught me more because I, my dad, he wasn't the head pro. He was my dad. And it's like, no dad. But yeah, I mean, things were pretty strict in a sense, but I think it's just, I was born, not necessarily, it's not really a military dad. It's just because I grew up at the military course, everything is kind of strict and regimented. And, and I, I enjoy that a lot, actually. I mean, to excel in the game of golf too, you have to have very good time management. Like you can't be late. You can't. No, no, no. Yeah. It's just in the sense that like my dad was just, I think the difference was, and maybe my brother has experienced it too, by going in the military and kind of following dad's footsteps. If you will, my dad never got very high in the military. He did a lot of his service as the head as the pro at the club. Not a bad way to do service though. No, I mean, exactly. Like your pension's a little, it's cut a little bit, but it was still those all came years. But one of the things that like my sister and I really dealt with was everything I, we did at the golf club reflected my dad. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. And he told us that. So everything as employees, we worked in the back shop. Like I started working in the back shop, cleaning clubs and carts at 12. Like everything, we heard this often, everything you do reflects me. Jensen name at Highlands for roughly 30 years was like, it was the name because 
dad was an assistant. His sons were winning club championships, the best players there. Then he became the head pro. And then now I'm with junior golfer winning everything like the Jensen name until he retired. And even a few years after he retired was very synonymous with that golf course. And it's funny now because he still plays there, but I go back there and it's like, no one knows who I am anymore, which is cool. Cause a lot of those people have died basically me as a kid, but everything you do reflects me. So as a, as a kid, that was a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure at seven, 10 years old. Yeah. And then even you think 13, 14, like when you're playing competitive, you're learning anger, you're learning integrity, you're learning all of these things. And everything I would do, even if I was golfing with members or other juniors, I would hear about it, good or bad, you know, at home that evening or the next day. And almost predominantly, you hear more of the bad stuff. Was your dad like an approachable guy? Yeah. My dad has a very stern looking on face. Yeah. Like I, we always, not now in his, in, his, in his older age, he's softened up quite a bit, but it's like my sister is five years older than me. All of her boyfriends and like male friends were like frightened of my dad. And all my buddies, we all worked at the golf club together. Like my dad hired all of my friends. Everybody was like scared of my dad just because he had like a stern ass looking face. And I mean, he was approachable, but at the same token, I would emote and connect more with my mom because I'm, I'm an emotional person. And I didn't, I didn't know how to process that as a teenager, especially because you're in a military environment. Men aren't meant to be emotional. No. Yeah. You're not allowed to be really and tough and work through it and brush your, you know, walk it off, brush yourself off. Like that's what men, you know, are supposed to be. We're supposed to be the tough guys all the time. Yeah. And then I would emote and connect more with my mom. And then I would also, I would get my dad's softer side by way of my mom telling me. So when my dad was proud of me, when my dad, these things, he would tell me because again, my dad was raised by an alcoholic father in the 1940s. Yeah. You don't talk about that stuff, right? Yeah. No, that's a, why, why should we talk about it? Like it happened, it happened. It's, it's just not something that we're going to discuss. Everybody just move forward and keep going. Yeah, over the last, let's say, 60 years, each decade's got progressively more emotional or more in tune with emotion as masculinity. And like, right. You know, as cliche as it is, better late than never is always a big deal, especially when it comes to men and their fathers, right? So like I've stated on the show before, like my dad like didn't really say he loved me until like I was like 23, but like he loved me and shit. But it just like, his dad was an, an Italian immigrant. My grandfather wasn't running around picking him up and kissing him and loving him all over the place. He was more like, you know, my dad asked his dad if he loved him. And he said, I feed you. I give you a place to live. I do all these things. Now you want me to tell you I love you too? He's like, I show you I love you. I don't need to tell you I love you. But getting told like I love you from your dad's like kind of a big deal. See, I, I, my, my family, like my wife and I have talked about this a lot when we first met. It's one of those lucky things. Like we're both from family units that are still together. And like, I told my parents, I love them every night, every night before bed, I'd go into the room and tell them I love them and they would tell it back. And then as I got older, when I wasn't feeling good, or you're pissed off at them or pissed off at something, the nights that I didn't go in, they knew something was up. Right, right. You know, if that, then they'd notice it. And then, then if that was the case, like my mom would talk to me. Cause again, this is the other thing that, like, why I got into the game of golf. So in Canada, like as a head pro, my dad's work was basically March until November, mm. maybe into November, sun up to sundown. 
Yeah, it's a long, that's a long work year. Yeah. He was home three months a year. He had nothing to do. So I didn't see my dad during those times growing up. Right. So that's kind of why I got into golf. I think when I look back, it's because I wanted to spend time with my dad. Because I really enjoyed those few months where I got to, you know, play hockey with my dad, you know, shoot a puck around and play in the snow, whatever, and especially watch hockey, go to hockey games with my dad. But I wanted to spend more time with my dad. So that was kind of why I started golfing. And it's really funny now that I'm a father. And I mean, my son's 10 months old and I've been stay at home since my wife went back to work. So for six months, I basically took a sabbatical off my job of making YouTube videos and, and sacrificing a lot of my identity my income, a lot of things to be with my, my son every day. And it's funny because he won't remember it, but I'll remember it. And it, my parents have told me like, you know, your dad actually spent a lot of time with you when you were younger, younger in those winter months, but you don't remember. Right. And I can understand, I can see like, maybe that's why I had this longing to spend more time with my dad. Especially when you play like, cause you said, I think you really put it perfectly. A lot of times as dudes, we get into sports because our dads like sports. Yes. Yeah. It's very rare. Like, oh, like he was born like with a fist. Like, so he became a boxer. It's like, you don't hear that very often. It was like, oh, my, I watched my dad playing basketball. Or enjoying the sport on TV kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I could do that too. And then my dad, like, you know, your parents just kind of take you to play sports because they want you to like be a normal kid. Yeah. The only thing that really me and my dad clicked over was Nick's basketball. Yankees baseball, Ranger hockey, giant football, and when Tiger would play. Yeah. And I'm 33. So I was a kid when, you know, like Tiger did the whole thing. Like, yeah. used to like when I hung out with my dad, where, was when he was home and he would sit down and watch TV and we watch sports together. Yeah. Like, that, that's the main essence of our relationship is sports. For sure. And for me, because I think that's also a time when men that maybe struggle to connect with other men, they use sport as that. Because my dad was also a guy that would go to like the pub and sit with all the bar flies, if you will, you know, and just watch sport and just shoot the shit. But like, and then call those guys friends. But we all know they're not friends because you don't talk, you don't talk to them in any other circumstance. Yeah. But that's kind of how you connect. Because even I, as a kid, we would go to the pub, basically like on the way home from the golf course, dad would have a beer or two. I'd get chicken fingers and fries. I'd have baseball cards or hockey cards and I'd be going through them. We'd be watching it. Like that was like my adolescence. Yeah, for sure. Your ages. And like, as I get older, you see that and you're like, oh, that's what my dad would do. Like I get it because my dad is very antisocial and I have a lot of that too. And he's in, he's in a very lonely world as a head pro at a golf course because it's not a glamorous job, especially back then. Now it's just like, a director of golf just paid a salary to basically. Yeah. Yeah. But back then it's like, you kind of associate golf with like a bajillion dollars. Yeah. But my dad had to like operate the pro shop, operate the back shop, golf carts, driving range tournaments and still golf. Like he, it was, and, and be the one that everyone wanted to like, Hey, I need a question. Can you like direct point of contact? Whereas now it's just a lot of giving yourself to other people like all the time. But then as I've grown up, like I know my dad's issues. And, you know, I can see the same insecurities that I had in him because it's like that, you know, my dad grew up like homeless. Like my, my dad grew up on homeless in Montreal, like always afraid of losing everything. So you're always kind of striving to work hard enough to keep it. Yeah. And there's a little bit of fear in there, but they mask it. You know what I mean? It's like, no, I have to do this. Mask it through work. 
Yeah, they mask it through work. I very much do that a lot. I do that from time to time too. I try not to, but like, you know, you're in the digital creator space now. So it's like, if you don't work, you don't eat. Exactly. You know, and, and you got kids to worry about. You know, luckily, I, you know, I haven't had, I don't have any kids right now to like be a financial, uh, lack of a better word, burden on me right now. But when you have kids, yeah, you know, this is what you sign up for, right? Like kids aren't cheap. And like when I kind of dirt, change my energy from full-time golf to full-time content they're one and the same they're the exact same thing you're only as good as your last thing you work very very hard and the results you can't control nope. you get hung up on results and data and numbers and scores and it's it's fucking tough yeah it's tough and especially when you like anything you do right i get to talk to professional athletes on this show a good amount and I love talking to professional athletes, one, because I love sports growing up. And I always like to get in the mind of like, what did it take to get there? And then I realized that a lot of roads are different, you know, but a lot as men, it really just comes down to a lot of the times when we talk about it is that we just couldn't talk about how we were feeling. Yeah. Like ever. It was just a horrible experience. If you really think about it, it's like, I'm familiar with your story, but I want the audience to know is you went pro at 16, right? No, no, no. I tried to kill myself the first time at 16. Okay. So we're going to circle around. Yeah. I turned pro. I turned pro after college. I turned pro at 24. At 24. All right. So seven to 10, you start playing, right? Yeah. At what point in your life do you start to feel like something's off here a little bit with me? Probably 12, 13. So 12, 13. Yeah. A lot of these things get masked as puberty phase. You know what I mean? Right especially as, as teen as, as 13, 14 year olds, it's so hard to understand feeling with the ways you feel because your brains aren't developed enough. So it feels something and it actually thinks, Oh, I'm going to feel like this forever. Oh yeah. Like that's what the brain is like then. And so you feel pain over a failed test, whatever, a divorce, a death, like bad golf. And like that hurt. Your brain literally thinks that, no, this hurt won't end. Yeah, no, this is forever. Especially too, like, you know, if you're 14, 15, break up, you think you'll never, you know, you'll, you can't live, you know, you'll never meet another person, something like that. Yeah. And you don't know. You don't, you, you actually do not know other way. And it's so interesting, especially looking back, like, fuck me, man. How difficult is that? Yeah. And you just, you have no tools. Everything at that age is the end of the world. But then conversely, you're kind of told as men in particular, get over it. Stop being a bitch. Yeah. Get over it. Figure it out. Figure it out. On to the next. Walk it off. Dust yourself off. And it's like, no. And because then some men, it's a matter of like how intensely you feel these feelings. Right. And I felt a lot. It's funny. So there's a, there's a book called If You Feel Too Much by Jamie Tworkowski, who like founded To Write Love in Our Arms. And it's like, yeah, some people feel little and you feel a lot. Kind of that. A lot. Yeah. I, like, you know, I think biologically, right? You break it down. Some people have better pain thresholds. Like some people go to the dentist, they get their tooth taken out. They're like better with it. Some people are horrible with it. I'm sure you know. And, and we'll get into like the, the tendonitis that you dealt with. It's like people deal with stuff a different way. Like people were wired. I think it's kind of the same thing though, is some people are maybe more equipped at times to deal with that, with that type of stuff. And some people aren't. I mean, if you look at people with serotonin imbalances in their brain, it's, you know, this is biological and physiological stuff that we're dealing with when it comes to that. So 
13 is around when you start feeling stuff like that. Did you go to anybody? Did you go to your mom? Because it sounds like your mom was the one that... My mom was in hurts too. Like my mom, I just... No, because everything was just a phase, right? Like, because you only... Like, I mean, I was overweight. I was just unhappy. Everything was just a phase. And then I was stubborn enough that I kind of would get through it in the summer times by playing good golf. And the thing is, like, so I had a really good summer when I was 14. And it's funny. So when I look back on my junior career. I had great summers, 14, 16, and 18. 15 and 17 were really bad. 15, I actually barely played any tournaments because I just didn't like it. You were just mentally shot at 15. I would... Because 14, I was basically the best in Quebec. Didn't even know. I just played the local stuff. I qualified for the provincial championship. Didn't even know there was a provincial championship. Played the provincial championship and that qualified me for a couple other interprovincial things that I had no idea about. So now all of a sudden there's like really high expectation. And isn't it weird that it's all created like by adults? Yeah. When I look back, it's like, fuck living in Florida now that you see, I see 13, 14 year old kids that are studs and the stuff that they're put into. But it's just like, I just played tournament golf because I liked competing. Right. And at four, I started playing tournament golf at 10, the local club stuff. So, you know, and it was like, oh my gosh. And then, so I think going, being 15 now, more have gone through more puberty and more figuring out who I am. The expectations were so high because when I was 14, like that summer was big. So now it's like, Oh, now keep it going. Play great again, because this is now opening doors for college scholarships, sponsorships, right? All these tournaments that I didn't know existed because I had a good year when I was 14. I'm aware of all these things I can do if I play well. And that pressure that I put on myself just, made it really, really difficult to perform and enjoy it. And then the tough thing was, because my dad, for lack of a... He was my coach, really. Not really my swing coach, but he was my last line of defense that I would talk to after golf, a tournament or a round of golf. And I started to realize that we only really talked and connected when I played bad. And when I played, oh, it's like, good job. There's not much to talk about. Do what you were supposed to do. Yeah. So, and then the thing that would start to happen is you're out on the golf course. And I mean, playing tournament golf is a, you're out there by yourself. You're thinking you have a lot of time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's even just watching it. I'm like, I don't know how these guys do this and, and they're walking around all day. Like, you know, people think golf is like this easy, like, you know, kind of thing. You go walk around 18 holes and have to worry about every shot and what club you have to use. And then you have all these people watching you and grading you and judging you, you know, solo sports are a big deal especially when it comes in terms of weighing on you mentally. It's not like you can pass the ball to somebody else and they take over. Well, that's the thing. You can't kind of switch off and just like, because when you do kind of switch off and just clock out, like a lot of my professional career, you kind of come back to like, you're like, like Will Ferrell, when he gives his debate in old school, what happened? I blocked up there. And you kind of look at your scorecard and you're like, shit, I just had made two bogeys. I was, I was one under and then I quickly went to one over and now it's like three holes later and I'm six over like, holy fuck, I'm, I've missed the cut. Yeah. Like I'm going home now. Basically. And like, so that kind of, as a junior golfer, it's, you know, you make a double bogey, you hit, you take a risk, you hit in the water. I'm thinking now, okay, how am I going to talk to dad about this? Right. So that idle time between shots, walking up the fairway, whatever it is, I'm thinking about how I'm going to talk about and learn from the mistakes I just made. And that was like, that was just so much stress and pressure because now you're not even thinking about just, it was all negative shit. Yeah. And that's funny. Cause when I started my YouTube channel, 
and I was documenting, you know, still playing tournament golf. The minute I started playing bad out there, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to tell the camera this? This audience of one in my mind, like that's what I made a YouTube video for. Like whether it was 20 people watching it or 20,000 people watching it, I'm already thinking like, how the fuck am I going to explain this? And then it's like, ah, maybe I just want to make a video. And that all started basically at that scar tissue, that ability to do that as a, an adult started as a junior golfer. Because I would, I mean, there's other kids out there who would just make mistakes and be like, fuck, whatever. But it's like nature or nurture. Did they whatever it because their dad's an accountant and gives zero fucks about how they play, right? Literally just drives them to it because they got into golf because their friend, their neighbor golfed. and They, yeah, they could afford it and like, you need something to do. You know, and like everyone's situation was different. And just because my dad was the head pro and everything you do reflects me. You know what I mean? Like me playing bad reflects my dad. And then this is how my stupid monkey brain of a 15 year old is thinking. I failed my father. Exactly. Like ultimately it's like, oh, because everyone at the club knows that I'm good and what I'm trying to do, you know? And then it was like, okay, when I was 16, that summer was great. And then when I was 17, that summer was shit. And then 18, that summer was really good. And it was just like... So you said 16, your summer was great. Yeah. So first I have to ask, how many suicide attempts have you made? I would say like, like serious ones. Yeah. Once when I was 16, twice when I was 27. And there's a lot of other like... Right. Little, little sprinkles in there. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot more in the in-between, but... All right. So you're 16. You said 16 was great, but you had your first suicide attempt. Can you tell me what, why those coincide? I don't know. I think like, if I think about, if I'm brutally honest, like I can remember both attempts when I was 27, the date and everything. I remember what happened when I was 16. I don't remember what time of year it was or anything like that. I don't know if it was at the, in the fall, like after golfing or if it was prior, I think it might've been in like the fall, winter. What did you try to do? I tried to hang myself, basically. Belt around the neck on, on my bed and thinking, oh, if I just, you know, fall off my bed. So it's like, I guess it's one of those things, too, when you think back like a 16-year-old, like, how would it have actually worked? I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you yeah, like... I mean, yeah, it can. Exactly. Like, you, you're basically using what you have at your disposal. But also, I'm, I was afraid to go through with it. So that's why like, I didn't fucking... <laughs> I guess I couldn't really use the internet then, but like, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Noose or whatever. But what you know is like what you see on like TV and movies. Yeah. Today. Like you figure it out. Like, okay, I, how can I stop breathing basically in a way that's not like I'm going to slit my wrist or something. Like I never, I never had those desires. I tried to, whenever it was, it was like trying to make it quick and painless as opposed to something that, consciously hurt i think because if i look back if i really dive into it it was much more the emotional pain that i wanted to continue to inflict right and have the physical be quick and end it and make all of the pain end as opposed to some people that cut or whatever it's like you're experiencing and you want to feel you want the physical pain to kind of take away from the mental pain and like that's why you're hurting yourself whereas i was hurting myself so much internally that I just wanted to stop hurting, period. Right. So did you just like kind of just like, oh, like this isn't working? Did you tell anybody about that initially? Yeah, my sister. My sister was like babysitting me. Like my parents were out. Oh, she covered for you, right? Well, no, no. She, she found she found me. Like, because I kind of, I think I just started like screaming for her basically, like crying. Like, 
just obviously was, I was struggling. Yeah. And then we basically like told my grandparents, I think my parents were on vacation or something. Then we told my grandparents and then we told my parents, it wasn't like this, like dirty little secret that we didn't want to tell anyone, but for whatever reason, it was just my mom and dad never thought to like really do much more about it because I bounced back pretty quickly. Okay. Like, I'm, like that's that. I'm not going to do that again. You know what I mean? And like, I'm very stubborn and I've always worked very hard. And like, at the time I was, I kind of, I always joke, I reached my like maximum density of like 220, 30 pounds. So I kind of just like, I never had a girlfriend or anything like that. Cause I just was like, fucking hated myself. And I just kind of busted my ass from that day forward and like lost 30 pounds over the course of like two years and like maybe even more like I got on probably got to like 190 like just kind of like you know I kind of got after it after that a little bit yeah I like got better grades chicks started to notice me a little bit more at 17 and then like yeah I just kind of worked through it that's just what I did because it was a phase because at the time to, to think about depression in the year 2000 or 1999 leading up to that depression, which wasn't a conversation, didn't even know what that word was. No, nah, not really. It wasn't even a conversation. Like it was not a conversation. And if it was, it'd be like, what do you have to be depressed about? Exactly. And if anything, the only connection to the word would have been the emotional, like you're sad, I'm depressed. Because even it wasn't the word that was thrown around like it does now. You know what I mean? People throw it around like, oh, I'm super depressed. Or even people like throw around that they're OCD. Oh, like, I've stated on this show so many times. I'm like, dude, don't say that stuff like that unless you have like a diagnosis. Yeah. Because oh, I like people like that toss that around. I'm like, that's a legit. Horrible thing to deal with. Yes. Just because you're like anal retentive and you keep things in order. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do your laundry every Sunday. You're not, you're not OCD. I'm super orderly. I keep things in line and I never toss around like. Oh, I've got OCD or anything. like I just even the word crazy toss around the word crazy by definition I am so fuck <laughs> yeah yeah no me too pretty much so like you know it's like that's our that's my word I'm gonna use it you know so like sometimes it's like I don't even like to use it but it's like it's also like people do that too they just be like I feel like I'm on the spectrum yeah you know and it's like uh, we also live in a world now that is so incredibly self centered and self absorbed that- oh yeah yeah yeah. We're all guilty of that too, a little bit, but like you're a little bit older than me. So you're a little bit pre cell phone, you know? The irony of it is, is the depressed person is incredibly self absorbed and self involved. The irony is like having depression, you, you, you have belly button syndrome. Like you actually think about yourself so much that it's a detriment. That's the tough thing. And like you don't, not, you know, because you want to. No. Whereas there's people that are just, selfish and self-involved but it's one of those things that's so so difficult to communicate sometimes but like going back then like yeah like being depressed you know if i look if i really really try to think about it like winnie the eeyore was written to mimic depression but even as kids when we watched winnie the pooh eeyore was just sad yeah oscar the grouch it's like gosh and they all fucking made fun of him for being a grouch too exactly so it's like no doctor. My parents never really thought, you know, we need to do something about this because I did kind of roll with it and get out of it. But then it's just like through ups and downs for years of working through it, smoking a ton of weed to just make myself feel better, drinking. I mean, I drank as a 15, 16 year old. Oh yeah, me too. 
And I, I literally, like my last couple of years of high school, 17, 18, 19, I didn't drink. Like my friends knew me as the one who didn't drink because I, you know, like, yeah, you did it already. Exactly. But I was like the pothead. I was the burnout. Like it just, that was better. Like just smoking weed and listening to 311 before bed. Like that was what I would do because it was just, you know, how I, I managed, how I coped. And I didn't understand exactly why or what I was doing, but it, it just felt like it worked. See, that's the thing that's wild. It's like, I didn't really start dealing with suicidal thoughts until like my mid to late twenties. And it's, I know for a fact that I would not have been able to handle that what I went through at like 26 at like 16. Like, thankfully I had, you know, some friends that have dealt with stuff and some friends that, you know, have lost their lives to depression and uh, drug abuse. And, you know, it was something that I at least had like kind of like a plan for it, but it kind of like, you know, like a template to be like, okay, like I'm old enough to get health insurance. I'm old enough to do this. I can control where I want to go when I want to go. So 16, right. You do this, you kind of work your way through it. 17, 18. It kind of went away. If you yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it like a wave. It's just like, oh, I'm just gonna like kind of enjoy life. It's not like you ever really forgot about it. I mean, I still if I look if I look between 16 and then you know turning pro at like 23, 24, it just kind of ebbed and flowed. And all the way that I got out of everything was just work harder. So from 16 to 18, lost a bunch of weight, played better golf didn't get a scholarship. So I went to, to college in Ottawa, had a really good first year on the team, played really good golf. So then it's like, I didn't like, I didn't, I wanted to turn pro. I didn't like college and like school, but my college golf coach was just like, stay and get a degree, please. I switched programs and I partied my ass off in school, but I still stayed at home. And it's like, I didn't have any debt. And I was just like, I was always turning pro. I like, I'm so stubborn and so determined no one's going to stop me at this point, including yourself, kind of. I paid for Q School my, with my own money from delivering pizzas for years and just like did it. I got on the Canadian tour. I just did it. And even did you want to be a pro from like seven? Always. Always want to be. Uh, okay. You're one of those guys. I'm yeah. jealous of people like you. They were like, at seven, I told myself I was going to do this. And then oh, I used to joke to my parents that I was going to be on the PJ tour at 16. I mean, that was, and the funny thing is there was a 16 year old in the year 2000, the same year I was 16, Ty Tryon, who qualified the PGA tour. When we would grow up, growing up, we would come down to Florida basically for the month of March. We'd take March break and maybe the week before or the week after we'd come here for like three weeks. Like my first steps were down. Like I'm born in March. I think my first steps were down here all the things. And then we'd be in Daytona beach, but we would go to Orlando to watch Arnold Palmer's tournament. Mm-hmm. And whatever year it was, I think it was, must've been the early nineties. Like we, we stayed in the same hotel. Like there was Easter egg hunt, like Greg Norman was there. And it was like a holiday. Yeah. Dan Forsman, just a PJ tour player at the time, like fucking nobody gave me a ball. You know, they give kids the ball. Yeah. 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 For sure. Gave me a ball. And that was the moment that I'm like, I want to play on the PJ tour. And it probably would have been like 1992 or 93, something like that, eight, nine years old, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. And it was like, no, this is what I want to do no matter what. So knowing that you wanted to play golf your entire life, right? When, so your first suicide attempt was at 16. And then when did you attempt again? 27, so 2011. And there was, there was definitely some other close calls on the in-between, in-between all of that. But like, I got on, on my first year on the Canadian tour was 2008 and it was so bad and so hard. And at the end of that season, so I played this, played the year, like I moved to Florida for the winter, played the year across Canada. Actually, we played, we played in the States and Canada. 
lost my card in the first week of September. The very next week was Q school again. So I went back to try to get my card back. I think I got like a shitty conditional card. So I didn't know how many starts I would get. And my sponsors all dropped me because they thought like my local people from my golf club were like funding me. And instead of like, I wanted three years, they gave me a year and it was keep your card, keep your Canadian tour card. We'll keep sponsoring you. So there's my pressure. There's my value. I need to do this. My value is my, my value is not me. My value is my score. And that was what I always struggled with. And I went to my, I did like my physical because shit, I hadn't been to a doctor in a while. Like our health go under your parents until like you finish university, basically. I finished university and my parents were like, when's the last time you got like physical? And I was like, fuck if I know. So I go to my doctor and we got to talking about things. And he says, I think, I think you have seasonal depression. Like knowing my K, my file and things we're talking about. And I said, fuck you. I told my doctor to fuck off. I said, no, I don't. Wow. Do you think that was a little bit of your dad coming out in you? A little bit. I think, but it was also a lot of like toxic masculinity and I'm a professional athlete. I'm a man, I'm a professional athlete and I'm not depressed. I don't have depression. I just had a bad season. Right. And you told your doctor, fuck you. Basically. Yeah. Wow. He brought it up to me and was like, nope. And what's super, super funny is the winter before I like went and moved to Florida, I worked at a friend's restaurant for a couple months, like basically from when I finished school, because I graduated in the winter, I didn't do the fall, the, the spring semester. So I knew I was always going to play that last year of 2007 as an amateur, turn pro in September, or go to Q school, turn pro like January. You're still like, you know, through all this partying and hardship that you're going through, you're, you still kind of kept your regimen like. Oh, yeah. You were like, a, you know, I know we throw words around, but you were kind of crazy with your regimen. Oh, like I just because I knew like this is what I'm going to this is what I'm known for. This is what I'm to do. This is your identity. And I'm a, I'm a good enough golfer. And so I worked at the restaurant, had a blast there. And then, so my, I lost my status. So it was like, okay, what am I going to do for the winter here in Ottawa? So I went back to the restaurant and a few weeks into working at the restaurant, the owner, who's a friend of mine, I golf with pulled me in. Like, so I was basically a server and manager. Like I did both. And he's like, you okay? He's like, you're not. And he knows me. Yeah. He felt comfortable enough. Like he looks at me as like another son to approach you that way. He's like, I don't think like, you're not yourself. And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, it's just all these little things when I look back. But to me in those moments, it was like, no, no, I'm okay. This house of cards I've been building is just slowly crumbling. Right. Right. Shout out to him though, for doing that. A lot of people just let shit go. Mm -hmm. And then when I look back and it was just basically rinse and repeat, like I did the same shit would work, work my ass off in the wintertime, save some money, but still not have enough money to go play for the year, but still have some people promise some money, potentially a sponsor here, my credit card. So now I'm accumulating debt. Yeah. Now that's another stressor there. That's the whole other thing. So that year, and then in 2010, basically is when I got her and it's like, got to keep going, got to keep going. I'm fucking golfing with a half golf ball lump on my arm that I'm not telling anybody about. From a tendon, like tendonitis that just flared up for whatever reason. It came from my neck, my nerves in my neck. So I guess that's where it carried my tension for years. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Sounds about right. You know, just dealing with everything. Now I'm literally chasing. So it's like, what's this entry fee? What's this tournament going to cost? What can I win? Okay. And I, I, I can remember countless showers, just taking a shower, thinking how much money I'm, where I need to finish this week to just make money. Because literally just gambling on yourself, pretty much can't keep going further and further into debt. So then in, in 2011, basically, when I like had to like retire, 
for the first time, I guess for the only time, it was like August, about August, late July. I played an event, played a Canadian tour event. Cause I would still get some starts here or there. Cause I had status eight, nine, and 10. And then 11, I got into a couple tournaments. Okay. And then I basically had a girlfriend at the time, but I've been talking to some friends who were flipping houses and kind of knew my, basically I have no more room on my credit cards. My parent, my mom had given me everything she could on lines of credit that we started together. Trying or yeah. My dad didn't know about how much debt I was floating. Cause my dad never wants to see his children struggle because he struggled. He literally was homeless. His fear was that his kids would have to experience what he experienced. He honestly, man, I don't know what, where it would have been. It would have been like 2014, 15, sometime in there. After we started, I told him how much debt I was floating. He almost dropped dead. When I told him I was in like $50,000 of credit card debt, he had no idea. And this was like 2000, yeah, 15, 16. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, geez. I had no more, I had nothing else I could do. So it was like, I'm done. And I was working as a laborer, flipping houses. And it was just like, it was fun. But I was like, I have nothing. I literally have nothing. Your entire identity up to then was golf. I have absolutely nothing. Like I have this girlfriend that I'm dating. Her dad thinks I'm a degenerate and has told me that because I'll never be able to provide for his daughter. So I first started thinking about killing myself Easter of 2011 because of this conversation with her dad. And it's just like that whole summer just kind of drips away, drips away, drips away. And it's like, yeah, by August, it's like, I have nothing. I literally have nothing. I'm in my parents' basement. I'm 27 years old. I'm in $50,000 of debt. How will I get a life? How will I, how can I do anything? And there's, there's no way out. I feel I have no skills. I've played golf my whole life and I turned down opportunities. So I worked at Lululemon in the winter in the off seasons a couple of times. And I turned down a job to go in the corporate office, like in Vancouver, like a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Lululemon is, is out here winning. Yeah. It's like, I have nothing. What can I do? Go sell stretchy pants? And it's like, luckily, I'm Canadian. So it's not like I'm worrying about healthcare and all these things. But, but you're a beast, though. That's why. You're like, dude, I'm a beast. I'm a filthy golfer. But I was never that confident. I never thought of that. Of myself. You never had moments like that? Even when you got your PGA card? You never were just like... No, I never. I was always... That goes back to your dad, though, right? That's what you're supposed to do, kind of. Yes and no. I think it just goes to my own poor... Because, you know, genetically, you are your dad. Sure. Yeah. And you are your mom. So like when it comes down to it, if, if that's, you know, genetically, you're going to inherit some things like that's what I'm supposed to do. Well, you probably get your work ethic or what you do now, probably from your dad. And then, some of, you know, and then the loving side of you. I am most and I have that side from my mom for sure. Yeah. That's a perfect balance. It takes years to figure that out though. Yeah. And so it's like, I had nothing because all I had was my ability of, as a golfer and all of those years of playing as an amateur, as a college player, as a professional golfer was just like, I'm just trying to prove something to someone else. I'm trying to prove that I'm good enough, prove that I'm good enough. And if I get to the PGA tour, if I get to this level, I will have proven it and I will be making money and we'll be okay. You know what I mean? And it was just like, that's, you're never going to get there because I, the reason why, and if I look back to the best times that I played golf as just you're playing it because you just like, fuck, I'm, I want to play well right now because it just feels good to play good golf. You're not thinking about what good golf does. Yeah, I can't relate. So it's just like, it doesn't matter because there's not like when I was an amateur, right? Like, oh, fuck, go play a tournament. Win, miss the cut, shoot 100. I'm still going and delivering pizzas tomorrow. Like nothing changes. 
it was a lot easier to play better then when it was, well, if I win, that's 10 grand in the bank. It's going to pay off this, it's going to do this. Like if I lose, it's this negative. But if I do this, everything had a caveat. Yeah. Some mathematical equation that had to be done. You were like doing like every round of golf was an if then, if this then, as opposed to just fucking go play. Yeah. I'm chilling. Like I'm just going to go play and that's it. For all those years, I fucking hated golf. Hated it. And even like in like when I started speaking about mental health, that's how I got some more sponsors because I met people at events that I did. And I even hated golfing with my sponsors because and I would be so open with them. Like, I hate recreational golf. Hate it. It's not fun for me because I just want to practice and compete. And because if I compete, I'm proving it. And even the first time I met my now father-in-law, I just came back from playing the Jamaica Open. And we were talking about it. I'm like, I fucking hated it. Da, 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 da. And he's like, well, we should play. I'm like, I said to him, like, I don't like golfing with people. Recreation. I'm sorry. I don't. Because I'm, I'm like, I was just like arrogant and or a prick enough to just be like that. But it's like, it's also you're doing that though, right? But there's something deep rooted though, that why you, you know, and it's kind of like the way you would do that and the way you would say like, I don't want to fucking play recreational golf. There was something there. And I think that you were still trying to figure out why the fuck do I want to play recreational golf? Yeah. Because it doesn't matter to me because my association with golf for years and years and years was worth, was value. So why do something if I'm not going to gain some sort of worth or value metric after it? Where now, fuck, I've just, I have so much fun playing golf. And it, it, I'm in a weird place now because it's that's like, awesome though. But whenever I play, I film. So I'm in this weird place. So it's like I'm trying to find a balance of that. But like, I just enjoy the game because my expectations are real. And that goes back to the very first thing we said, like, I still want to play tournament golf. But when I try to play a tournament, I haven't practiced. Like, you know, and I mean, I know I could play well. Do you find solace in the game now? Yeah, for sure. The thing that I, I just have to kind of right now, I'm totally taking a break from it entirely. I'm taking a break from everything. And I'm just you got it sometimes because when I, I want to practice, cause I want to practice towards something. And now that I'm in this, this career where everything I do is trying to make YouTube video and trying to break through. Yeah. You were worrying about metrics before now. Yeah. You get into this world. That's all it is, baby. No. And especially because from when I started YouTube five years ago, the golf YouTube space in America has blown up. Now it's just so saturated and it's so hard to get views and because it's just there, it's just tough. It's, and then now you, you chase that and you get frustrated by those results. And it's just like, at the end of the day, like I'm so much healthier now right? because of, I mean, I was hospitalized almost 11 years ago now. And I've done, there's been so many years of work because I'm stubborn and I like to put in the work. There's so many years of work to get healthy. And then at each interval, there's, and whenever I speak and for the last, I mean, I've been doing public speaking now for eight years, I never give the same talk twice because I don't believe a mental health communicator should just continue to tell the story of why they tried to kill themselves. And this is how I got through it because you're not that person anymore. Right. I'm a different person then, but I still have depression. I still struggle with these things because they're going to manifest in new scenarios. So it's like being single and just dating why I didn't give a shit about meeting someone that was because of my illness. And then when I met my wife, who I meet this girl, I'm like, I want to marry. Now I'm dealing with all of these things and I'm having to soften up as a person. Now it's like, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. When I'm saying to people, you need to be open, you need to be honest, you need to be vulnerable to people you love. I have to say to this woman that I want to marry. I, I after a week, I'm like, I'm going to marry this girl. Right. Oh, and it's like, now I'm letting you into all of this even more so. And it, but that's a continued thing. 
And now I have fun. And even when you're talking about having kids, I did not want to have a kid. Mm. I did not want children because I'm so deathly afraid that my son will now have to bury me when I kill myself. It's just a thing that I struggle with, but it's less and less and less every day. And that's good. I want to see like when your focus changed, because it's like you went from this guy that had $50,000 in debt. You're living in your parents' basement. You lose your pro card, right? Mm. And you're like, this can't get any worse. Yeah. Right. And you're like, listen, this is it. You know, I don't want to be alive anymore. And then when you're playing and you see like the PGA tour guys, right. Are you crying? Are, are you like, can you even watch golf? Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoy watching the major. So you were still just absorbing it still. That's what I find interesting about you, though, is like you had all of these things happen in your life, but like golf in a way is like kind of what kept you alive. And so you found something else to replace it. Yeah, more or less. Like I've ne- golf's never been like the bane of my existence. Right? Like I've hated playing the game of golf and hated my job because golf became my job. But golf in its truest form, I've never hated that. And I don't like, I don't, as a, I like watching sport. I prefer to watch hockey. I prefer to watch football, but you know, I prefer to watch CrossFit. Like those are the sports I like wrestling wrestling fan. Like I don't consume golf content. You're a wrestling fan? Big time. Oh, me too. Huge. Me too. I've been a Mark my whole life, man. Big time, Mark. We'll talk about that at the end. I have a a couple wrestling questions for you. So I'm just going to have some rapid questions for you, right? We talked a little bit about your past. We talked about your parents. We talked about your upbringing. Uh, hardships. My first question, honestly, is someone that was so regimented such as yourself, right? Have you just kind of shifted that in? And now that you're implementing that also into your mental health, is this something that you're working on every day? Kind of, sort of. So it's funny because one of the things that I used to say, and I wrote an article about it, like I think for Huffington Post, and then I've given it in a talk a little bit. And I like compared my mental health to the way that I approached my golf game. And I kind of use the bike wheel, like in all the spokes as the, the reference or like the, the visualization. And a wheel, you know, let's say it has all, all those spokes in it, it'll roll, it'll move forward, right? You know, a, a spoke breaks, a couple bend, it still moves. But then as more come apart, the wheel's going nowhere. So it's like the game, you know, my golf game, you'd have driving, chipping, putting, mental game, diet, all, you'd have all these things. And you could still play good golf with some of those things kind of hanging off a little bit. Right. Not on form. And then you work with your team, your coaches, and you look at the best players in the world. You would evaluate after tournaments and this and that. It's like you're kind of looking at like where, how's the wheel moving, so to speak. And the way that I, through treatment and through my recovery process, you know, my mental health wheel, my health wheel. Yes, it's mental health, but I kind of look at it. It's your health. Your mind is just as important as your body. Like 100%. So it's, there's the wheels, right? There's, there's the diet, there's alcohol consumption, there's physical fitness. There's, for me, there was treatment, there was community, there's meditation, you sleep, like these things that are super, super important. And, you know, one could fall by the wayside for a little bit, things keep going, but then another one could, and it's like, if it's not replaced by the one that now all of a sudden, and I started to really understand this analogy when I was traveling and speaking because basically like 15, 16, I still played a little bit, but I was like speaking all the time because that's how I was paying for speaking. And I went all in for like two years of just speaking and kind of was paying down debt and still playing some tournaments. But I would go and I, I was 
healing, but probably not fully healed still three, four years removed. And that's one thing I would start to notice is a lot of mental health communicators, they jump into the conversation far too early. Like I jumped into the conversation way too early in 2012 doing news articles and this and that because it was identity. It was something like, Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about for sure. Like I've learned a lot, even with this show, like, you're not fully healed and it's sometimes opening those wounds can be really tough. For sure. There's sometimes I talk on stuff about this show and then I'll legit have a nightmare about it. I would, when, especially when I was traveling heavy. So it's like my sleep was getting fucked because it's like I'm hotels and I'm ha- I'm burning the candle at both ends by doing an event and getting emails, getting DMs and responding to them and hearing everybody throw their heavy shit on you. Now, all of a sudden your diet's not great. when you're. Tra- so it's like these things that, as a player, as a golfer, I'd have a team that could keep me accountable. Whereas as a single man, I didn't really. My mom would check in. And then as I met Kelly, the first time Kelly and I traveled together, we had only been dating for like a month and a bit. She came up to Bella's talk day with me and like watched me in my element for like four days. But it's like she could kind of check in, like, hey, have you been, have you been meditating? Like, have you been practicing? Have you been doing your headspace? Like, you know, you've had a two, three beers for two, three nights now. It's like gonna catch up to you. Like it's gonna. So it's those, those things that I had to, so for, for a handful of years, being so cognizant of what goes into this package of my health, I'm at a bit of a place now where it's not necessarily autopilot, but a lot of the stressors that will cause those folks to break or bow, if you will, they're not existent anymore. Traveling Uh. is really low not competing. Yeah. YouTube's a stressful thing, but there's not, you know, and yeah, when we had our sons, sleep became an issue, but we like, we prioritize sleep so, so much that like, there's not as many stressors in my life right now. How many hours you get a night? We still try to like Jude goes down around eight o'clock. Yeah. And, like we're, we go straight to our bed and just like watch a show on the iPad and we're, we're asleep by like nine thirty between nine thirty and 10. And we're up at like seven with him. I, so I love that. I wish I could do that. Super jealous. We still go to bed super early. Like love that. I love everything about that. Next super quick question. Your wife, Kelly, mm-hmm. what do you think your favorite, her favorite thing about you is and your, her least favorite? Well, I, I know a hundred percent her least favorite thing about me is I interrupt people. <laughs> I'm Canadian. We talk like this. I'm, fr- I'm from a French Canadian family on top of that. And I think it might be a Northern thing too. Like, cause Northern Americans do it too. Oh yeah. No, no. I, I love talking over someone. That's a New York thing. You're interrupting, but the conversation's still going. Oh yeah, for sure. Whereas down here, interrupting someone is viewed as like, you know, the conversation now has to go where you took it. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You're able to. And yeah, I interrupt. I'm getting so much better. I just think her Oh shit. Her favorite thing about me. I always would have been like my work ethic. Probably now I think it's just like, it's funny because my favorite thing is always the thing I've noticed about her is her heart. She cares for people so, so much. And I, I've never been like that. I, I am like that, but not really like, and I, I've softened so much since being with her and like, I crave being social. Yeah. She brought that out of you. Yeah. And I think especially with, with our son now with you, like, I think probably if she was like to have to dig deep, like her favorite thing about me is like, I was, I sacrificed literally everything for our, our family right now. Because when all is said and done, like our son's starting daycare at one. So at the end of August, 
I'll have four months to kind of go all in on YouTube. And if it's, if it fucking doesn't pick back up, like I got to find a job, man. Yeah. It's all right though. That's not a fun thought for me, but I'm okay with that. Just from speaking to somebody like I've been in the creator space since like 2012 and it's like, let those things excite you. Yeah. Let those things excite you. Like just being like, you know what? I figured it out before I could figure it out again. You know, because when you start to let yourself, like you said before, it's like when it comes to content creation, just put the shit out. Yeah. Don't doubt yourself. Cause that's why people never start channels. That's why people never start speaking. That's why everyone's, Oh, I want to do that. Just, yo, just fucking do it, dude. Full send that shit. Well, I mean, I started like, it's Gary, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Like, yeah. As corny as he is, as corny as he sounds, some of the shit he says is right. But I think that's where it's like all those years of being a professional golfer and associating that identity. Now I'm like, I'm a YouTuber. And if I have to stop, you know, my knee jerk to that is like, fuck, I failed. Right. Cause I didn't achieve my goal. But then, cause that was my need. That's how I felt. I feel as a golfer. I still feel, I feel like I'm a failed professional golfer, but whatever. And I, people on the internet love to tell me that too, but I don't fucking care anymore. And so if I have to stop creating my own YouTube stuff, like we used to think like, you know, if you stop playing, would you still get a job in the golf industry? And I was like, never. Whereas I think if I had to stop, chasing the influencer content creator life because it's just not making enough money to yeah. compliment. I mean, my wife thankfully does well. Like I'd still be in probably media marketing, digital, like not like one of those things where I would feel like, Oh, I was a failed YouTuber. So now I can't get into like, you know what I mean? Like it's so different than golf. Like, Oh, I make it a super player. I started by making a song about sucking tits. Yeah. Okay. And now I'm doing mental health podcasting and comedy podcasting. And then are they? (laughs) Yeah, right. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. There's something, there's something going on there, but I'm just telling you, dude, always keep your eyes on like what's going on in the market. It's just like watching the stock market when it comes to like all this internet shit. So just always like keep your eye on that. Just throw as much shit out there. It will resonate. And if it doesn't, you try something different. Yeah. That's the best part about it because with the world now, there's so many niche markets and shit. Like you don't need a million subs. No. You need a thousand. Yeah. That messes with everything you do. That's why I'm able to have a job still. Yeah. Barely under 40,000 subs. And I've been making like a good living for three years now. Yeah. Because people fuck with you, bro. Exactly. That's all. That's what you need. Yeah, and just it's a matter of maintaining that essentially. Yeah, but you know, like you said, though, if you're like you played golf because you wanted to prove to other people, right? You make content because you want to give it to other people. Every once in a while, dude, take care of yourself, man. Hang out with your kids, bro. Everybody will understand, and if they don't, fuck them. Who cares? Exactly. Well, that's like why I'm like I'm on a sabbatical right now. I fucking love it. Like every week, it's like my weeks are going by so slow because I literally like I would make a checklist every day of the things I have to do. I don't anymore. Like I'm, I'm working out every day just because I want to. But literally, like this podcast and was on the checklist for today. And on Monday, I take my dog get her nails cut. Like those are literally the two things. Whereas, like I want to have five critical tasks every day. You spent thirty years being regimented. Give yourself six months, my man. Oh, that's why I love it. I'm like so. I'm, like I literally take my son to the pool. We drive a golf cart around. Like it's just fucking. I, I love it. it. I got the last couple of questions. Then I'll let you go. All right. So your son will he play golf? Yes. If he wants to, 100%. Will I make him? No. Like, I don't. 
the thing that the funny thing is, so being in Florida, like being in the Southern state sport for your boys is everything, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. My fiance is from Florida and she like went to a school where like 900 people went to the NFL. It's crazy down there. My sister-in-laws, my all of Kelly's family, they all have boys, all of them. So literally like Jude's like the 11th boy, I think. Now that they're, most of them are teen, like 10, 11, 12, 13. The parents have no lies because it's travel baseball, it's basketball. And I'm like, Kelly. Little savages. Yeah. Dude, A, that's all expensive. Like growing up in Canada, hockey's expensive as shit. I'm like, Kelly, this is the thing. If Jude wants to golf, we get him into it because when he becomes eight, nine, 10 years old, you drop him off. I'll be back in five, six hours. You don't have to, whereas the parents for all the other sports, you got to sit there with them and watch it for three, four hours. It's your day. Golf, no. You can leave them there. And the thing is, if they're bad, if they do something wrong, you know instantly as a parent. Because you're picking them up and if they fucking threw a club. So it does go back to like the stuff that my dad said. Like every- yeah, 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 it does. But it's true because not, there's no secrets on a golf course, really. And if you're in the clinics or you're, you're, you swore to a member or something like that, you don't get away. It's going to find out itself day or two removed at worst, right? So that's when like, if he wants to play golf, like I'd love to get him in the game of golf. Because as parents, I think it's a, a it gives us time, but then B, man, he'll learn so much more that'll help him in life than if he played baseball. And I'm fucking Canadian. I want him to play hockey. <laughs> I live in Florida. Hey, so hey, I, listen, I, listen. The Panthers had a good run this year down there. It's not too bad. Still in, but no. So it's like, yeah, there is one one arena here in Jacksonville. Like, so it's like I'd love to get him into hockey and like Yeah. Because his grandparents golf, like his both grandfathers golf. And like, we live in Jacksonville. We have the players. Like he was at the players this year at whatever, six months. So he's definitely going to be exposed to the game of golf. If he wants the golf, thousand. And if he doesn't, it's all good. Love it. Top five wrestlers of all time. Of all time? Yeah. Dude. Okay. So this is going to be very interesting because I grew up, I got into wrestling like, Dude, my first, my dad, my first pay-per-view was the 1993 Royal Rumble that Yokozuna won. Uh, was that the one when he threw Macho Man over the rope? Macho yeah. tried to pin him. <laughs> tried to pin him. Like, tried to pin him. And then I watched WrestleMania at Caesars Palace that year. So, like, I have the network and I would go watch. Dude, my bachelor party went to the Royal Rumble. Like, my, my best man, another one of my groom fan, we're all marks. I, like, it's, I would say my, I was a Bret Hart guy growing up. Big time. Canadian, obviously. Bret Hart's my favorite wrestler. Yeah. Yeah. I hated Shawn Michaels and then I got older. He's not my favorite now because the, all the Montreal screw job and all the aftermath, like he's tarnished his reputation. Never was a Shawn Michaels guy. I obviously like the DX. I wasn't a big Stone Cold guy, but I fucking love Stone Cold. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love Stone Cold. Stone Cold was his my guy. Is so good. Oh, okay. Yeah. If I were to go top five, it's, and I'll it's give you mine. And I'll give you mine. Because there's going to be current and there's going to be mixed in of legacy. Honestly, Randy Orton should be in everyone's top five. Honestly, he's, he's probably the GOAT. And his run, well, Chris Jericho. Jericho's great. Jericho's still doing it down in AW. Yeah, that's based here in Jacksonville. I would say Randy. It wasn't a Randy guy when he came around, but Randy for sure. I think like performance-wise, AJ Styles, probably. Phenomenal one. Yeah. Hard to go against Kenny Omega. Love Kenny. V-Trigger. One-winged angel. Great finish. And then I really liked Edge because Edge was Canadian too. There you go. So I, yeah. But I would say... Worst spear in the business, but I got it. Yeah, well, Roman's is pretty bad. Yeah, his is pretty bad, too. Yeah, yeah. His, yeah, you know what? I'll give it to Roman. I'll give Edge a, a break. Yeah. You know, I'm a big... I like Becky Lynch a lot. She's, Becky Lynch is great. Becky Lynch is great. Of all times, tough, man. 
I'll hit you with my five, and then if anything jumps out to you, let me know. All right. Stone Cold's got to be in the top five. But even like Chris Benoit, I was a huge Chris Benoit guy. Yeah, me too. Me too. Talk about misappropriation of mental health and oh, for sure, one hundred percent. But Stone Cold, not in any particular order. Stone Cold, Bret Hart, Eddie Guerrero. Ooh. Dude, because I was I'm five nine, so I was always small. So I love WCW cruiserweights when I was a kid. All those got when Jericho was there, Benoit, Malenko, all those guys were like my guys, you know. Because I, and then you see these big, huge guys. I'll never be that big. Being Cody Rhodes guy all of a sudden again. Oh hell yeah, dude! Hell yeah. I have so, a bullet club, sure. I was a bullet. Like I'm a New Japan guy too. But I don't watch Japan. <laughs> I just like some of them. I love New Japan. And then uh, I will say Eddie, Brett, Stone Cold. Jericho and then Macho Man because I liked Macho Man because he was smaller than Hulk Hogan and I feel like Hulk Hogan always bullied him kind of. Yeah, I didn't like Hulk Hogan. No, nah, I was a mach- I was Macho Madness, brother. I liked Warlord. Oh, yeah, Warlord was cool too, he though. Awful. When I watch all the Royal Rumbles, it's like the guy is so terrible. Here comes the Warlord, Gorilla Monsoon. Yeah, it's, hard. it's so funny how it's like people criticize them all for using the nostalgia pop, but like current guys just don't do it because that's their own problem. They didn't know how to create stars. No. And I just love when when you see an old guy come back, it's because the crowd wants to see him. It's not because Vince wants him around. He's like, how can I make money? You know, Stone Cold came back at WrestleMania. Kevin Owens is great. Kevin Owens probably top five. Kevin Owens. I was going to say my top five current guys right now are Kevin Owens, Cody Rhodes, Love Kenny Omega, but he's hurt. When he comes back, it'd be great. Kenny Omega, AJ Styles, and Switchblade. Oh, are you you the good brothers? Do you pay attention to their stuff? Yeah, 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 for sure. I have to say Switchblade because he's a buddy of mine. So if I don't say him, yeah, he'll get mad at me. As a kind of tie into this conversation, through those last handful of years, when I it would be my when I would struggle with sleep and like couldn't sleep, bad thoughts. I just had turn on the WWE Network, watch. Packages of old matches, Royal Rumbles, text my buddies. Like wrestling's always been a very healthy kind of release for me because it's just like, I mean, it's sport, but it's just like, you can totally suspend disbelief, forget about the world and just kind of dive into it. Yeah. And for me, like I literally watched back, went back and watched the entire Goldberg streak when I was having a hard time. Oh yeah. And I was just like, dude, I remember this. This was awesome. I just go back and watch Rumbles. Rumbles are so funny. I don't have time now, like literally with married with a kid. Like if my wife goes away for work, like I just, that I catch up on like broken skull sessions. And, oh, 100. As soon as my fiance falls asleep, I'm on Peacock. Just catching up. We go to bed. Like I don't, can't stay at all. Cause with the kid, you can't. So even like, I'm still a little embarrassed though. That's why. So it's like, she'll go to sleep and I'll watch like Cody Rose. You would agree back, back when we were, didn't have kids. It was like, she'd watch one, maybe a month with me. Yeah, yeah. She watched she watched WrestleMania with me and she like saw me like popping over fucking. She, she's a big Fashion Banks fan, but now she's uh yeah, you know, we'll, see, we'll see where she comes. We'll see what she's gonna go to AEW. That's one hundred percent. And the last question I ask everybody on the show is are you happy today? It's funny, yes, I am. So when we were going back to all that stuff and this and that, that would be the question that I would just and I'm unabashedly honest with myself and with people to a fault, probably with my parents or with Kelly at times, like are you happy? You know what I mean? It's a simple question, but you have to think deep for the answer. And it's not just surface. Like, hey, how are things? Things are good. How are you doing? Good. No, are you happy? Are you happy? Yes. And it's funny because circumstantially, I'm not doing anything I would traditionally want to be doing, but no, I'm happy. Yeah. And that's like, that's, that's what I fall back on. Am I happy? Yep. And that's what matters. Because there's literally years 
of not being happy day after day after day after day. That question is a big one. Like you said, it just forces you to be honest with yourself. That's just as plain as it gets. Take, sometimes it takes a day to figure, you know, to really think about it. But listen, man, you're your own tribal chief now. Exactly. Be the one. You're the head of the table. You're doing your thing, man. Listen, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I love that you're Mark because I'm a huge fucking Mark. And I just wanted to say, I really appreciate you just being so candid and so honest with me. And we'll have to do it again and just talk wrestling the entire time. How wrestling saved our lives. And then uh, where can everybody find you on the internet? I mean, if you just put my name, Andrew Jensen, into YouTube, it would be the first thing that pops up. And then that's basically, that's it. Anything and everything else kind of funnels back to YouTube. There won't be any new videos coming for a while, but you can watch over 500 to watch. You can go. That sounds good to me. Go check him out everywhere. Mr. Andrew Jensen, the tribal chief, head of the table. Thank you so much for joining me today. And you guys can find us everywhere at 101 OTC on the internet, off the cuff on YouTube. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!